After more than a decade without any new approvals in small cell lung cancer, we've seen some exciting advances in the field. What those developments are and what they could mean for patients and clinicians alike is what we'll be exploring today. Welcome to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, and joining me to discuss updates in small cell lung cancer is Dr. Tofik Awanikoko, Professor and Vice Chair for Faculty Development in the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Awanikoko, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Sands. Happy to be here. I'm very excited to discuss this topic with you today with all the new things going on, but let's start with first-line extensive stage disease, where we've seen multiple positive trials incorporating immunotherapy. Are you able to provide an overview, and what is your preferred regimen in the first-line setting of extensive stage small cell lung cancer? Thanks for that question, and it's really exciting where we find ourselves these days when it comes to treatment of small cell lung cancer. We've gone to a situation where we had only one option to where you can actually ask me about my preferred regimen. The studies that have brought us this far, as we all recognize, are the studies of combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy. And specifically, we're talking about Empower 133 that combine atezolizumab with platinum doublet chemotherapy and show that that regimen is superior to chemotherapy alone. We also have the Caspian trial where the arm of the trial that combined Dovaluma with chemotherapy outperformed chemotherapy alone. While the combination of pembrolizumab as well as nivolumab with chemotherapy did not result in label indication at this point, we know that the trend from those trials, the Keynote 604 and the ECOGACRIM 5161 were out of this strategy in patients. For me, the combination of atezolizumab with chemotherapy or devalumab with chemotherapy is equally important and useful for patients. And I tend to use one or the other depending on specific considerations that I have to the patient in front of me. So just out of curiosity, then, what are some of those considerations as far as whether you choose a tezo or derva in the first line setting with chemotherapy? So there are a few basic considerations that come into play based on the design and the conduct of the trials. When I have a patient with brain metastasis that is asymptomatic, especially when it is very small and does not require immediate use of radiation therapy, I'm more likely to go with the Caspian regimen of Duvaluma with chemotherapy because that trial allowed for patients with asymptomatic untreated brain metastasis to come on this study. So that will be one differentiating factor. The other factor will be whether or not I'm able to use carboplatin or cisplatin for the patient. The Caspian trial allowed for both agents to be used. The Empower 133 only used carboplatin, and we cannot just extrapolate and decide to use cisplatin. We know that majority of our patients with extensive stage disease, we tend to use carboplatin, but there are a few clinical considerations that will make one consider cisplatin over carboplatin. One that comes readily to mind would be a patient with extensive marrow replacement with cytopenias, where we perhaps will anticipate more hematologic cytotoxicity from carboplatin, and then you might elect to use cisplatin in that regard. For such a patient, the available prospective data will be to use the Valumab along with cisplatin-based double chemotherapy. So now we're going to transition into second and beyond, because that's where things really get interesting. So lurbanectidin was granted accelerated approval by the FDA based on a single-arm basket trial. 
But recent data from the randomized trial of doxorubicin and lurbanectidin was negative compared to CAV versus topotecan, or at least was not a statistically significant difference per the initial report we've gotten, although we still have details that we're waiting for. What do you see as the role for lurbanectidin right now? What are you thinking looking forward? The result of the Atlantis trial that compared lurbanectidin along with doxorubicin, I said combination regimen against topotecan or standard of care option in patients was actually somewhat of a surprise and to a great degree disappointing because the accelerated approval for lobinectidine based on the single arm trial of single agent lobinectidine, we were all hopeful that the time has finally come when we're going to have another approved standard option along with topotecan in this setting. While we don't have the full details yet as to the specific results for the trial, we're all going by the information released by the study sponsor saying that the study failed to meet its pre-specified efficacy endpoint. So while this is a setback for the approval process for this compound, I think we still all have to wait for two things. One is the full details of the results of the trial so that we get a better sense of why it failed to translate into a superior regimen over topotecan. More importantly for our patient will be the regulatory decision. What is the FDA going to do going forward? Are they going to allow them to keep the approval so that it still remains available for use for our patient while demanding additional evidence to support its efficacy? Or are they going to take away the accelerated approval that was granted before, which would then significantly limit the use of lobinectidine to investigational settings only. Hopefully we'll get some clarity with this in the next several months, and only then can we really start having practical strategies on how to access the drug and how best to use it. So with that in mind about lurbanectidin, topotecan has really been the FDA-approved option. And of course, there are a lot of other treatments that are utilized off-label. So what is your preference and practice? How do you utilize these, including lurbanectidin, along with topotecan and these other off-label options? My preference in terms of salvage therapy, I tend to go with paclitaxel for several reasons. While this is not an FDA-approved drug, it has guideline recommendation through professional bodies such as NCCN, as endorsed by ASCO and ESMO and other organizations like that, that we have several non-randomized trials that showed efficacy of this drug. It's already approved in other tumor types. We know the side effect profile, and patients tend to tolerate it well, especially when given on the weekly schedule. The other agent that I started using in the last several months based on the FDA approval was lobinectidin. With the results of the Atlantis trial, I have not changed my practice. I still consider lobinectidin an option at this point because the approval is still in place. And we have to remember, the approval was not based on the Atlantis trial that is negative. The Atlantis trial was meant to provide additional support to the single arm trial that showed some signal of efficacy. So until we have some additional regulatory approval and decision, I think lobinectidine will remain a part of our, our salvage therapy regimen going forward. One other drug that I tend to use, especially when I'm thinking of convenience for patients, is temozolomide. 
Uh, this is orally administered and it doesn't require the patient to come in for weekly infusion as we do with paclitaxel. So these are some of the drugs I use. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Tofik Awanikoko about recent developments in small cell lung cancer. Now, Dr. Awanikoko, in non-small cell lung cancer, of course, there's a whole bunch of discussion about biomarkers and targets and such. Within small cell lung cancer, are there any biomarkers? Is there anything that being utilized right now? Biomarkers are still quite investigational in small cell, unfortunately. We know that great effort has gone into testing whether or not PDL1 expression will help identify patients for salvage immunotherapy treatment with some signals suggesting increased response rates in PDL1 positive patients. The challenge with PDL1 is that overall expression rate is very, very low in small cell. Less than 20% of patients would have PDL1 expression. So it makes it difficult to even start asking the question of what degree of PDL1 is likely to be predictive. But be that as it may, PDL1 expression has been shown to correlate with improved response rates with pembrolizumab, for instance, significant amount of work and effort went into evaluating tumor mutation abroading in the Checkmate 032 trial, which initially showed possible impact with patients having high TMB and overall survival advantage of giving nivolumab and ipilimumab together, where almost 62% of those patients were alive at one year, which is unheard of in small cell, even in the frontline setting. That is a very, very high bar that we've not been able to see in unselected patient population. The challenge with TMB is to date, all the prospective trials that looked at TMB as a potential predictor failed to show any significant association with TMB. Uh, the challenge is, doesn't matter where you put the cut point, you always see benefit above and below that cut point, which then means that while you might have greater benefit with those with high TMB, you are likely to be denying potentially beneficial treatment to those with low TMB because some of them will still benefit. So this is quite investigational at this point. I'm hopeful that down the road, we'll figure out how best to utilize TMB to select patients, especially for immunotherapy. Another area that we are focused on in the last year or two is now the recognition that small cell lung cancer is not one and the same disease across patients that we do have subtypes of small cell, even within this single rubric of small cell lung cancer. And this definition of subtyping is based on the transcriptional program that drives the growth of the cancer cells, for which we have now recognized four main subtypes driven by ASCL1, NeuroD1, PAL2F3, or YAP1. We don't yet have robust data to show any correlation between these subtypes and the therapeutic strategies that we're using, be it chemotherapy or immunotherapy. But some of the works that we recently published, as well as works by others, indicate to us that these subtypes of small cell over time would help guide us to select patients, whereby we show that the YAP1 subtype of small cell has the flamed tumor phenotype, which would suggest that that is probably a phenotype and subtype that is vulnerable to immunotherapy-based strategy. Efforts are still ongoing, but I'm very, very hopeful that in the next couple of years, 
we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we're able to use reproducible, simple, and reliable biomarkers to select patients for therapeutic intervention. So you've discussed a lot of what's going on. And for a disease without many approved options, it certainly has some nuances. And you've really laid out a lot of those. Now going forward, we're in an exciting time with a number of new drugs in development, particularly within small cell lung cancer. Among these ongoing studies and drugs in development, what are you most excited about? Now, in small cell, we're getting to the point where the pharmaceutical industry is now paying attention. It's no longer that desert where nobody wanted to invest their time, effort, and risk their drug, only to be shown to be ineffective by topotecan. There are a number of studies at advanced stages that I hope might give us newer options. One would be the liposomal arenotecan trial that is comparing these to topotecan in a relapse patient as second-line strategy. The study is almost fully accrued. It's a global study and will be very, very interesting to see the result of that trial in the next couple of years once the overall survival data is in. The other strategy that looks promising, those strategies targeting DLL3. So we know that DLL3 is a biomarker that is very prevalent in small cell. It has direct readout of transcription factor ASCUL1 in small cell, and close to 80% of small cell lung cancer samples would have DLL3 expression of different intensity. At the earliest strategy looking at DLL3 as a target was the antibody drug conjugate with rovapituzumab tesserine, which unfortunately, due to significant toxicity, was not a successful strategy. So that drug is no longer in development in small cell, but it at least paved the way for our ability to target DLL3 for therapeutic strategy in small cell. Now we have the bite-specific T-cell engaging antibodies that also rely on the presence of DLL3 on a small cell with the benefit of also engaging with CD3 receptor on lymphocytes and then serving as an anchor that brings the lymphocyte into the tumor microenvironment. The most advanced of this construct is the compound from Amgen called AMG757. This has actually enrolled significantly, and early efficacy data presented at the CDC meeting this year showed objective tumor response of around 20% and stable disease in another 30% of patients. So clinical benefit rate of somewhere between 50 and 60%. I think that is very, very encouraging for a strategy that is based on antibody therapy only. There is no chemotherapy involved. Uh, There is a similar compound being developed by Boringer Ingelheim that is already in clinical testing in Europe and very soon should be open to enrollment here in the U.S. So I see these strategies as paving the way for us for using known biomarkers in small cell to drive therapeutic development. A lot going on in small cell lung cancer. And after a history of very few advances, this is certainly an exciting time. I look forward to talking to you in the future about some of these advances. I think the conversation in the next year or two is going to be a different one, and that's exciting. But for now, I want to thank you, Dr. Iwanakoko, for joining me to discuss some of these advances in small cell lung cancer. Absolutely wonderful having you on the program. Thank you so much, Dr. Sainz. It's a pleasure being here. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands. 
To access this and other episodes in our series, visit reachmd.com slash projectoncology, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.